0: Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSB Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now we're living in a connected cyber society and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: Black cloak To help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Marco.
2: Sean. Ford divided... I messed up right off the bat.
3: What did you do? Four over
2: four over two.
3: Four over two.
2: Two the four.
3: <laughs> what are we doing math now? We're doing math exactly.
2: exactly. We're doing division. That's why I messed up and used the actual word and the tease word that I was using for my uh,
3: my kick. Wow, wow. So you wanted to play <laughs> with divide? Okay. Yeah. Well,
2: good, if you if you take four and you do it by two, you you end up two and. Neither side i don't know
3: i want to have what you're having yeah
2: it's all the, <laughs> all the immunity boost clearly it's not, <laughs> not working yet
3: <laughs> well i'll tell you what we are actually here to to have a good time and it seems like we're already doing that and at the same time to have a, a serious conversation about something that on my opinion it's a little bit unexpected. When uh, I heard about this topic, I was like, "Hmm, I had to think about it. I had to divide, and then I had to multiply, <laughs> and then I have to do some other crazy formula." But you know me; I'm I, I'm not a math person. You're that. It's all about dividing and conquering. Mark. Yeah, but but apart from math, what really made me think is every time we talk about. Uh, You know, anything regarding cybersecurity, anything regarding technology, machine learning, artificial intelligence, everything is driven by data. Data is the new oil, data is this, data is that. Privacy is a big issue. Uh, What do they do with all this data? They put it in this big cloud computer and then maybe they'll use it in the future. I mean, Sean, that's the kind of conversation we hear. And then... I'm like some portion of our society are actually left without enough data. And I was like, what Did we overfished the data in the sea. So yeah.
2: We're, we're, because none left, <laughs> left for anybody to use. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well I, I just it just made me think. And I, I associated that with the, the, the digital divide and now there is the data divide as well. So I'm interested to understand, yeah, it sounds like right straight in the middle at the intersection of technology and and society. So without further ado, we have Jillian Diebold here, and I'm feeling really proud because I, I think I pronounced it correctly. That is joining us on the show. <laughs> so, <laughs> apart from you know the, the, the usual rambling and a little bit of fun that Sean and I have at the beginning, we we want to welcome to this uh, episode of Redefining Society, and we would like to hear who you are, what you do, and uh, and what is this research that you're presenting.
4: Okay. Definitely. Um, So my name is Jillian um, and I'm a policy analyst at the Center for Data Innovation in Washington, D.C., which is part of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, ITIF. It's kind of a mouthful, all all the different names. Um, But basically what we do at the center is we promote public policies designed to maximize the benefits of data-driven innovation in the public and private sectors. So... Um, Part of the think tank work involves kind of educating policymakers and and the public about the opportunities and challenges associated with data. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we talk about the key technology trends like open data, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things. Um, And so I joined the center um, a little bit over a year ago, actually. And I lead my team's work on digital inequalities and data disparities. So most recently, I actually put out a report um, on the issue that Marco introduced called the data divide, which is sort of these the um, you know social and economic inequalities that kind of result from that lack of data collection about certain individuals and communities. So, like Marco said, a lot of the discourse right now is around privacy and sort of over collection of data. But we kind of turn the issue on its head and think about what happens when subgroups are completely left out of data sets. Um, or, you know, are underrepresented in those data sets. And really, what I find is that, you know, while there's been all these advances in technology that's made it really easier and cheaper than ever to use and produce and collect data um you know people are still really lacking access to some of that data about themselves and therefore they can't really they can't really put it to use and so they can't really benefit from that data-driven innovation that we at the center um are really trying to promote so it's kind of turning all these issues um on their head and i'm really excited to kind of dive into it further with you both
2: yeah i love it and you already started to touch on what data divide is. And as I think both Mark and I were alluding to, we, we've heard the concept of digital divide, uh, which effectively is people can have access and others don't always have access to the digital world. And what what is the data divide in the formal definition? Um, and perhaps wh- how does it... Re- relate and maybe even connect to a digital divide.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think I kind of just said it, but I think our formal definition is sort of the um, social and economic inequalities that result from that lack of data collection and, and use about some individuals um, and communities. And so it really, you know we we kind of coined this term and actually the center has been writing and using this term for actually a, almost a decade now um and so i've kind of taken it because it's it's becoming this really prominent issue which we could we can get into what where that appetite lies but um you know, I think it builds off that we use the term data divide because it builds off that digital divide concept, the gap in use and access and this is sort of gaps in use access collection of data rather than just internet connected technologies. Um, And I think they're really connected in a lot of ways. A lot of the same people that are thinking about who has access to broadband and internet connected technologies, you know, or um, ICTs in general, are you know they're really interested in these in these same issues. But when it comes to data, um, but at the same time, I think it's important to think about that. That these divides and data divides, so to speak, can really emerge in a lot of different ways, and it's not just in terms of access to internet-connected technology. So it's also in terms of access to you know, or and by access I mean representation in um, federal statistics or who has you know sensor data um, collected about their neighborhood and what what that neighborhood looks like. That kind of breakdown. So it's not just you know who can go and find information on the internet or you know who can complete their job or their school or whatever on online it's and who has what those devices but it's also those actual data-driven devices so think about like wearable technology or at your doctor's office or does your health system have the electronic health records um you know things like that it's sort of it's sort of taking it in this much broader scope than just thinking about you know access to the internet it's thinking about data in a really broad kind of holistic way.
2: yeah and, and do, do you look at it from uh creation perspective a, an ownership perspective a use perspective Cause, and maybe i don't know if it, an example or two might help because I'm, I'm just picturing okay so i i create or i don't know I, I have access to uh shopping information right and i can choose the best place to shop at the right time or or i i can get deliveries at the right whatever um, and i might not have that information handy and therefore, I just shop wherever I think is okay. Um, that's probably a really bad example. Um, no, but, then yeah, there are, but then there are companies that use the d- data I create to do other things that may or may not serve me. And and it's, so, who owns that data? So, I guess the, the question is, maybe an example or two: what data is being looked at, and how, how is it being looked at?
4: Definitely, I think. I think it. This, the report that I just authored, I think it covers kind of. It's, it's, a, it's a broad issue, right? So you have to take that really broad lens. I think I don't get necessarily into as much as data ownership, although that is definitely an emerging area, especially around that concept of data sovereignty. I think it's more, you know, about who's generating the data and then who is using that data. And so ideally, you know, in a perfect world, you're both generating it and you're getting to use it. And that's that's really the idea we're promoting here. Um, so I think, I mean, there's, there's many examples. The report, I kind of walk through, you know, demographic data gaps, meaning um, gaps in representation, access, use um, among, you know, race, income, gender, age, disability, that kind of demographic. Then there's geographic data gaps. So, you know, based on where you live, the kind same kinds of representation issues, um, you know, whether you live in a rural versus urban, high versus low-income neighborhood, um, you know, and then yeah, and then the next part would be sort of around the data systems itself, um, as in, you know. What systems are available? What kind of data infrastructure is available for for different people? So again, covers covers a lot. But I think the example you were you were saying about that grocery store and how you can you can sort of choose or not, and it's it's sort of similar to that. But I think so. There's there's just a, a number of examples. Probably um, one of the most salient ones, at least right now, obviously. The, COVID pandemic and, you know, emerging monkeypox pandemic and whatever healthcare data um, is sort of top of mind for, for everyone. And I would say, so the example there is kind of, you know, we know healthcare um, uh, as a field really lags behind other sectors in terms of getting updated digital technologies and kind of it, as a result, updated data collection systems. It's, it's probably the sector that's actually the furthest behind in terms of high quality data collection. Um, and you know, researchers are using health data for for everything. Um, you know, they they use it to to measure the efficacy of new treatments and, and devices, and, and looking at the different um, social determinants of health. Um, but when we don't have that robust data infrastructure to kind of extract the information that we need um, from registries or electronic health records or you know, patient-owned wearable devices, I have I have one on my wrist right now. Um, you know that's when we lead that kind of creates that divide of you know some people and some communities are going to have um access to that kind of healthcare data that will tell them you know allow them to benefit from things like you know precision medicine or um you know get a better um understanding of their of their medical history um and over time and then other people won't. So you know those gaps are have a lot of different ramifications, you know, in the in the right now um, with electronic health records, you know, there's only about half, maybe a little over half of hospitals in the United States kind of use um, electronic health record systems to exchange patient data. So that means, you know, you might be born into an environment that collects all this data. And then suddenly when you're age five, you get moved to another state, you know, your family moves to another state um, where, so then all your data pre-age five, kind of lost because you don't have any way there's no data sharing system there um so I think that's one sort of data divide of you know who has those electronic health records what kind of health systems what's their interoperability um what's the data sharing there look like um do they speak to each other um you know, and that can even be within a state doesn't even mean you need to move to a state that can mean you move across the city and you change doctors. Suddenly, your doctor's office doesn't have that same data that you've had for the last, you know, however many years of your life. Um, And so that lack of um, data sharing that kind of barrier, again, it really just means less accurate diagnosing and and treatments for patients and, and and what happens when you get, you know, a public health crisis, like with COVID, is we're having incomplete data sets across the board.
3: So the first thing that comes in my mind is that it's kind of like the story repeating itself, right? I mean, I I didn't look in, in depth in the report, but I scanned through it. And of course, you, you reference already rural area, thinking education, race. And it's kind of like, if you're at a disadvantage before, now you're probably getting these two <laughs> coming oh, your well,
2: way. Well, every, everything is at scale when you throw digital in front of it, right? So <laughs> right. Whatever, whatever it was before, it's just amplified.
3: Yeah. And, and right, of course, the, one, one of the first thing that, that, that come to mind, and I think we already kind of discussed that, is, is the health uh, data. But you can think in terms of, again, education, transportation, possibility to get a job and I mean I think we can go on and on and I was kind of scanning through so I'd love to hear some other um not much case study but like all these things that are affecting people in is it connected also to to racial profiles to income I'm sure that's one of the basic one but is it really following the same step where the gap is getting bigger and bigger instead of using technology to kind of make everybody uh, you know (laughs) more involved in our society on an equal level
4: i think it the patterns that i kind of trace through yeah they often sort of follow those historical patterns And, and one of the big things is you know we need policymakers to focus on this right now because You know, as we're moving further and further into this sort of data-driven economy, the same groups that have been left behind for the last 100 years—they're going to be; those gaps are going only only going to widen. And that's that's sort of the philosophy, obviously, also with the digital divide um, concept. So it really it really follows on that. But yeah, I mean, I think the key thing here that sort of again sort of turns the issue on its head is you know we're worrying a lot about, like you said, sort of racial profiling and all those things, and obviously. There are issues that we need to be solving, but I think what it is is when we when we start to get into these these really um, uh, heated discourses about you know things like alg- algorithmic bias or or thing or you know artificial intelligence bias and artificial intelligence. I think what this report is trying to do is take a step back and saying. Um, we're almost, we're almost getting ahead of ourselves with that. Obviously we're, you know, those systems need to have oversight and we need to worry about what those, that oversight looks like, but we're not really focusing on those core inputs. So again, it's sort of, we're getting ahead of ourselves and here I'm saying, you know, we need to focus on the fundamentals. What is the core inputs going into these systems and what does that data look like? And I think when we, when we do that and when we actually start to build on that, you know, I think then that, that will sort of slowly but surely increase trust with those communities that maybe in the past were getting really um, disadvantaged by some of that data-driven uh, decision making.
2: And when we look at this operationally, and I've, I've had the uh, opportunity to discuss uh, TEFCA, which is the na- U.S. National Healthcare uh, EHR system, I guess, basically, <laughs> uh, to put it simply, and what what that says to me as as we paint a picture around a national healthcare system database uh, is there's one big giant bucket of data, um, but even that has, that that's that has a set of lines drawn around or a line drawn around it, uh, perhaps keeping it separate from other things, and and then maybe some of that is extracted and put into another bucket, and you know, we have some overlapping buckets, maybe not connected. So I'm, I'm wondering how how we need to look at all of those buckets. Do we need to formally define the buckets, the intersection of them, the ownership of them? I don't know if you look at any of that in, in the context of the report or, or the organization you're you're doing work for.
4: Yeah, so I don't, in this specific report, not necessarily something I cover, but I I mean, I think it's a really interesting issue and my instinct there is to sort of focus on the overarching buckets, right? And, you know, right now, I think again this sort of tendency is to get this really hyper specific focus but we aren't we need all the whole thing is that we need to take this step back and focus on yeah the national healthcare system you know a lot of the work and there's some really really great work being done at the state level and local level but then you know those are not speaking to the wider system and so i think the most potential here to kind of reduce these divides really in my opinion is at that federal level and they're you know has been sort of some appetite. Uh, definitely, has been some appetite in the Biden administration for to do this and to kind of increase um, um, data equity across the board. And, and the sort of perspective that they're taking, which again I agree with, is sort of again taking taking these buckets. And you know, we're saying healthcare, and I think I think that's actually a really positive thing because it encompasses all those below things. And I don't necessarily have the answers yet for you know how do you deal when the issues of healthcare and I mean, this isn't really. This may be a bad example, but let's say healthcare and financial services—they overlap, which yeah, they could theoretically. Um, you know, I don't have the answers yet, but I think there's a lot of interesting work in the sort of data governance space that's not necessarily my area of expertise. About you know how do we how do we treat that when it kind of leaves those big big systems? But right now, I think. It's almost again, getting ahead of ourselves. we need to worry about how we're getting the data to just move within the system itself and just outside of my individual computer or the hospital's individual computer. you know i think I think there's some core things we've gotta got to worry about, and i would I would lean towards focus on the sect maybe a sectoral approach is really what I would probably what I'd say there
3: so I'm gonna follow the the bucket thing, but I actually found uh, a a figure here, a graphic uh, that's called the Decentralized Federal Statistical System. And I think it's kind of picturing what you just said, meaning there is all these different buckets, and it, it, I don't see that there is so much of a communication there. So uh, yeah, just to give an idea, it, it, <laughs> it looks like a, 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 a beehive, and <laughs> you look at bureau, bureau of Transport and Statistics, Bureau of Labor, National Agricultural, and then you have Office Research Evaluation and Statistic and, and Sci- Science and Engineering National Center. And everything should then connect to a like a central database, which will be the, the chief statistician of the US. I mean, I li- I'm kind of reading for the audience just to give an idea of what this looks like. And I'm wondering... Which one come first? I mean, you say, you know, that we got to start somewhere and w- where do we give priority right now? Do we give priority in the way that we handle the data and then eventually we go and find the one that have been left behind or should we actually start by giving, I mean, getting the data from everyone and then organize Because... It, I don't. I mean, what? What is? What comes first?
4: Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, again, it's a. It's a key. A g- good question that I don't necessarily have the best answer to. And I think, again, it sort of depends on what the key political issues are right now so you know what are the hot button issues it's really healthcare right now so it's sort of like that's where the administration is putting their focus and that's what policymakers are worrying about um in a year from now that could completely change um and I think we do have to be kind of flexible in our approach and sort of you know take these issues as as they come and sort of try and have that that one step in the future, one step in the past. trying to figure out, you know, what is going to be the next big challenge? Um, you know, I might say my instinct right now is probably climate related issues and divides there. Um, obviously, that's going to only increase in relevance in the coming years. So when it's sort of like what to prioritize first, I think we need a lot more federal research just sort of into where these critical data gaps are and how they define critical might be different than how you or i define critical um but i think in my report i kind of go through and i say the data systems are probably of the most the, the highest priority because those affect the greatest number of people and and sort of stand to do the greatest amount of harm if they're not really built correctly or you know have those have those wrong inputs and so when i'm saying systems i'm talking healthcare, financial services uh education environmental monitoring, those kinds of things that affect everyone, you know, not just a small group, although those, the small groups, obviously important.
3: Can well. you give me an example of, of the one, the issues related to the environment? like the? Yeah,
4: I think it's, this is actually a really interesting one for me. Um, so the uh, EPA Environmental Protection Agency has an air quality monitoring network of Don't quote me on the exact number. Let's say 3000 air quality monitoring stations. And to be clear, they're extremely accurate and extremely high quality. They're also pretty expensive to sort of distribute um, and actually, you know, uh, collect data. So that's collecting things, you know, about particulate matter in the air, the air quality on a given day. And they kind of feed into this federal index that gives a score about the air quality in a given location um, on a given day, month, year. Um, and so that's great. But when you hear the number 3000, that means, you know, think of how many places in the United States aren't going to actually have a very, a nearby air quality monitoring station and things become sort of problematic. Um, so the prime example there, I'm from Philadelphia. So all my all my anecdotes are going to relate to that city. Um, but in Now I'm going to forget the year 2019, I think South Philadelphia has a number of heavy industry, um, has a heavy industry complex and there's a number of chemical plants there. And one of them exploded and, you know, released a large amount of chemical toxins into the air um, on that day. And on that same day, the environmental, the, the EPA air quality monitoring station closest to Philadelphia recorded Philadelphia as having one of the cleanest days, cleanest air days of the entire year. Um, and again, it was it was the day of a chemical refinery explosion. So something is clearly not adding up in terms of the, you know, environmental monitoring there. And so what I'm saying with those data gaps on that, in that regard or the, the data divides there is sort of, you know, where you live, Um, will determine how accurate that kind of government data really is for you. And as a result, you know, I think that that environmental data is so important for, you know, community advocacy. How can you say, you know, um, we live near this industrial plant and X amount of us have now, after 20 years, have now developed the same disease You know, but there's no proof of it. Um, You know, when you have those kind of air quality monitoring stations, maybe you can say, by the way, it's also been horrible air quality for the last 20 years. Um, Coincidentally, you know, it's really important for for community advocacy. Then it's really important for, you know, city and state and federal government um, to make decisions about, you know, how much? How many? How much resources to allocate to a given area? How do we? How do we regulate that industry in that area? If they don't know that there's a massive problem going on in a certain part of a city, because on, you know, uh, fifty miles away is the closest monitoring station, you know, the, the, they're going to make decisions based on, you know, inaccurate or incomplete data. So, I think it, it's really relevant with the environmental stuff.
3: Sean, I'm thinking smart cities. Are you thinking smart cities? No. <laughs> No, They're not smart, They're okay, not smart. <laughs> then you lose I won you, you, you fell. <laughs> no, I mean, communities and all these services monitoring and everything. It's like when we talk, does a smart city needs to be really rich and be in New York and be in a smart city l a or or every smaller community can be somehow smart, and that will be a benefit for the community. That's why I'm thinking smart city in this contest,
2: yeah, I think um. If we put, and I don't know if I have the right answer, uh, probably not, but I mean, te- technology is uh, fairly inexpensive. Now, maybe not the $3,000 monitors or sensors that are out there, worth um, $3,000, so they're not $3,000, 3,000 sensors <laughs> that went out that are expensive. Um, so that goes against what i'm about to say but i think generally speaking i mean if we were to try to do something individually it would be impossible or near impossible but if a, a group of people in a in a in a city or a town wanted to come together and say we want to be smarter in the way we do things i think technology makes that possible scale uh, for right? sure Certainly, at scale, and perhaps I think we've had conversations to this point on smart cities, where multiple cities create a little digital region, and they, they pool their resources to do things for each other and, and help the greater the greater area. Um, what, given this point that uh, that we're talking about now, that my question to you, Jillian is kind of who then is. Kind of leading this charge you talked about the biden administration and at the federal level um but in the case you presented for the uh the environment it's limited to, limited to those three thousand and perhaps there are other cities and and groups looking at that uh, for their own particular area um do they benefit from the federal data as well or are they they remain separate and i yeah, well, let's start there. How, how do how do we find a way to drive this innovation in a way that's meaningful for everybody? Um,
4: no, def- I, I mean, I think that's a, a key issue, right? Is that how do we reach all the people? Because like you said, that individual level data collection or, you know, individual monitoring kind of thing, that's just, that's really not not possible. And I think it's the kind of thing we need to think through of, Right, federal federal uh, investment and whatever it always will target the big cities, the New Yorks, the LAs um, first. And what do you what do you do about the town of five thousand? That's fifty miles outside those cities. Um, and I think who should be leading the charge is. It, it, I, it sounds like a cop-out, but it's context-dependent. Um, you know, I think cities, um, it's who's who's sort of controlling the funds. And when it gets to the more rural areas, it's probably going to need to be the states or even the counties who are sort of more in tune. And there, there's some really interesting, um, you know, opportunities there. I think what's kind of not thought about is sort of the the data collection is always... I think we've we've sort of been talking about it and that's kind of on on me of as this this top down thing you know like the government at large is sort of collecting the data um but I think we can also think of it in this bottom up approach and that you know data collection be, can really be a really participatory process um and there's there's a lot of examples of that kind of to go back to the environment thing I think citizen science and that whole whole realm which is it's getting a little tangential but I think that there's a lot of community level action grassroots level action to sort of collect data on a, on a specific topic. Now that's again, topical. It doesn't necessarily create a perfect system that collects um, community data on every single thing. But I think the more that those kinds of approaches, those grassroots level approaches are supported through top-down investment from different levels of government. And, th- and th- that is happening. And, and again, mostly in the environmental realm, but there's, there's other potential. I think COVID's kind of opened up new, new doors for that. Um, I'm going to pause you. you more- you're making
2: me. Th- you're you're making me think about uh, map data, and traffic data, yeah. and then therefore ride rideshare uh, pricing uh, data. And when can I get a when can I get a ride? And is there a ride nearby? And those types of things, which are commercially driven, right? The, the companies mm-hmm. companies you I'll say it use the people to generate that data for them. Uh, which the the user then benefits from, but then they also use that data for other, other purposes. So I don't do. you, do you see a model like that coming into play? And does that have to be commercially driven, or are there other other means to to arrive there?
4: Um, I think that sometimes the private sector is better equipped to sort of drive that, but I also would say on that kind of crowdsourced concept, there's a lot of really interesting public use cases there, um, especially for... Um, kind of like humanitarian aid. So, in in various um, earthquakes and and sort of natural disasters in the last five or so years, there's been a lot of efforts, and this is kind of around the world and the United States to sort of increase that crowdsource data. So, whether that's sort of real time location um, updates via SMS or, or mapping kind of things, um, you know, people can contribute in real time that kind of alternative or alternative data to one sort of repository, and it's usually um, publicly run. So I can think the Department of State has supported something called um, the Humanitarian Open Street Map, which again, sort of maps um, a lot of various sites of, of different humanitarian crises in real time. And I think that's a really valuable um, use case. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of that kind of crowdsourced data. And I think it's something we actually need to think about how we can incorporate that more and more into federal statistics, um, especially for its potential for that, for that real-time information, because right now, obviously, you know, we take the census, not, not take, you know, we, we complete the census, however, um, often or the American Community Survey once a year, whatever. Um, and that doesn't necessarily give you that real time, you know, th- a lot of things change in a year, as we know. So I think the, the crowdsource data is such an interesting opportunity and obviously happening both through the private sector, but there's some really interesting um, public ventures as well.
3: And we are relatively lucky now that it takes a year to look at the data from the census. I mean, years ago, it would take a few years to get the result of the census. So really talking about old news <laughs> when they come out, right? What can we do right now? So uh, as we probably start getting into the end of this conversation, uh, there is, I have to make a decision, which is, one, I'm going to talk about too much data versus you know, bad data versus good data. And then there's the privacy and other other f- political uh, topics that we can bring to the table. But I think that I I'll prefer to talk about the parallel between the data divide and the digital divide, because I can't in my head really divide, you get the, the word game there, divide the two, right? A, a smartphone. That's how I share my my data. That's if I have a car that, that follow me with the GPS. That I then I participate to traffic information. I participate to pollution. I participate to a lot of things. But if I don't have that device, if I don't have a the connected car, if I don't have the computer, how how do I get into the system now? Given we know a lot of people that are hackers, they don't want to be in the system. They're trying to get, <laughs> to get away, right, um, off the grid. In this case, we're doing the opposite things, like, because there are good things and bad things. So what is, did it come out that there is actually a correlation between, between the two, like giving the technology to people in order so that you can actually give them the, the pro of using this technology?
4: Yeah, I just think that I think, yeah, it's it's obviously the correlation of you know you have access to the device, you're more likely to use it and give your data. I just think the other issue that comes up though is, and and it's sort of the same thing with the digital divide is, um, you know, we, uh, for example, in schools, um, cities, ISPs, whoever, we're giving you know students laptops or their family's laptops. And that's great, obviously super important. That doesn't mean the digital divides closed. Um, you know, they were given, you know, or broadband access, not given, you know, they have access to broadband um, in their home still doesn't mean the digital divides closed because they can't really make full use of it or sort of take advantage of the opportunity. Um, and I think even more importantly, they don't necessarily trust the opportunity. So I think it's the same thing here with the data divide. You know, we can give or, you know, people can access wearable devices or these kinds of things, but until they really understand how to make full use of it, you know, we're not going to necessarily see the benefits. So I think we're kind of at a similar place with the data divide and the digital divide of like, you know, the, the, the hardware part almost is sort of there, but there's still this hesitancy, hostility, trust issue. Um, it's, it's still real. And so what to do the about it? The
3: educational that, you know, part. That you're referring yeah. to educating people which i agree with you i mean even people that do have access to the most expensive technology in the world today they still don't know, how to, still still don't know how to use it, it yeah. I, I totally exactly. i totally agree with you yeah. yeah
4: right so i think until people understand kind of how their data i think it's it's sort of on the on the individual level you know how their data actually tangibly benefits them which right now they don't necessarily see that there's not necessarily a one-to-one of oh i gave my data here so that means i got better x y and z i think once you kind of make those things more obvious and that comes through you know messaging policy whatever um i think you know we'll get we'll get more of an uptake not only of the devices which is not necessarily the point but just a a general more more trust in the technology and data-driven technology as a whole
2: (laughs) go ahead marco
3: uh, yeah, I'm curious to know, what's what's the reaction of the policymaker when you present these, uh, these reports? Um, Are they very think, political oh. about it and say, Yeah, we'll do something. Or they're like, No, we know it's a problem. We're, we're working on it.
4: Um, I think, saying like, I mean, obviously, data is political, we've known that that doesn't hasn't really changed in the last three administrations um, at all. So I think I think no matter what the party or whatever, I would say it's, a, it's pretty much a nonpartisan issue. Um, everyone's sort of concerned about getting this better data just because in the end, better data informs better policy. That's universally agreed upon. It doesn't really matter what side of the aisle you are on there. Um, and so, yeah, the appetite definitely has been where we're really trying to take concrete action on this and, and more focusing on the statistics side. But I think, you know, as as we kind of reach um, higher levels of broadband deployment across the country, the FCC and other organizations that have been focusing on that specifically digital divide issue are kind of looking for, okay, what's the next, what's the next thing we need to be, you know, we need to tackle. And so there's kind of um, an interest there as
3: well.
2: So in, in the spirit of the the next thing, um, so Marco asked, what, what's the reaction been thus far? Um, what do you hope folks do with the report now that it's written what what who who should take action and what what should that action be is it, is it limited to the politicians or are there others that can benefit from uh, the findings that your report found and put together
4: Um, I mean, I think, I think at all levels of government, that's definitely what the report focuses. I mean, you know, our recommendations focus on, um, have some, have some key takeaways and, you know, the way we need to really improve that data quality. But I think, you know, your average reader can also take away and sort of have a better understanding of, you know, someone might not even really realize they're being put at a relative disadvantage just because they don't have access to something or not really realize that, oh, that's a data collection, um, Issue, you know, I think it's this. This framing is not really something, you know, we're not really going through our lives and saying, "Oh, I have this tool in my classroom, or I have this in my bank," and thinking, "Oh, that's a data collection issue, um, or that's a rep- I'm not represented in that. That's that. That's just not how we appro- approach it." So I think, you know, the general public can kind of take away this thing is it's it's affecting everyone. It really is not just affecting a niche group of people. I can, you know, every all of us on this podcast and anyone listening, you know, it's really everyone's affected by this in, in one way or another. Um, these data divides are, are really broad and they're really, you know, stand to really grow as we as we move forward. You know, you see, Marco was saying, you know, we used to have to wait so long to, to get the census data and now we have it right away. I mean, that's only showing how, how you know, we're, we're moving at this kind of exponential speed. So the gaps are only gonna widen and it's only gonna become more obvious to us the, ways, the different ways we're affected if we're not kind of taking action now.
3: Yeah, I mean it's a big conversation, and of course, uh, as many times we we do, we we, we want to keep going. So maybe maybe you can come back, and because I feel like the <laughs> the the taking, you know, taking initiative. Like I'm thinking, people are listening right now, and they some of them in the audience are going to be very very technically literate, like to, to the point, way better than us, all three of us together. And they are going to be someone and it's like, well, I just learned something. And I'm wondering if I am in that group of people or geographic area that I am part of that described, you know, portion of the population on the other side of the divide. I'm wondering what could they do? I mean, would reading this report to help them. Would contact their politician help them? What what action these people that kind of become aware because they listen to this can do?
4: Yeah, I think it's it's contact your politician, but it's also contact, you know, I mean, your congressperson, but it's also contact your school district or you just talk to your doctor about what kind of things are available. Um, it's, you know, actually participating in the statistical collection that you can, you know, if you um, receive the ACS, it's, it's actually filling out those surveys. I think that kind of participation is really important. Um, and then I think it's also thinking about what kind of ways you can get involved at this sort of grassroots level? What citizen science initiatives can you take part in? And I don't just mean you know um, going out to the <laughs> to the park and and collecting air quality, but you know it's thinking about um, how you can get your whole neighborhood to be doing that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot there's a lot of opportunities for for individuals um, beyond just sort of ha- ha- haggling your politician to do something. Although that that's definitely something I would support as well. It's,
3: it's- it's in the Constitution too. So, <laughs>
4: right,
2: yeah. I, I can't right. help just even just drawing on uh, the smart cities things we we touched on earlier. I, I just can't help but think that, that this can't be so new to us as a society. I mean, mm-hmm. the reason we have towns in certain areas is because there are resources in those areas that we want to extract and mine and use and and sell and distribute and and data is just another one of those right and i think now we're talking about our own data so maybe there the, maybe there's some differences but i feel that if we look back in time and and see why big me- metropolitan areas formed the way they did and why smaller towns remain the way they do uh i don't know maybe there's something to learn from that or so perhaps,
3: the the, the, yeah. the data is the new river where we build the city around right. <laughs> Uh, I think we I, don't know. I think that's that makes sense. You know, well, we you can, know so. what the resources are. <laughs> we look at look at
2: Neom City and then I don't know, maybe they the, the collection of all the resources in one area in an efficient and effective way. Economies of scale. I don't have the answer. I'm just th- thinking out loud. Oh, here. we
3: never know the answer. Talk for hours, I think. Uh, we never know the answer. As we always say, and I'm gonna wrap with this, is if we made you think uh, and maybe you're going to tell a story to your neighbor or your, your, your friend that, about the conversation that you heard and you guys have a, a back and forth about it. We, we did a good job. And uh, all together, maybe we can find the answer and all together we can take action so that we do use technology for good in, uh, in our society. So, the,
2: answer Marco. the answer What's is, that? The answer is 84 divided by... <laughs> I'm so yeah 84
3: divided <laughs> by two 42 the mean. meaning of life <laughs> the universe and everything else and with that. that jill jillian thank you so much for being part of this I, we know it's a big conversation and we, you know we, we took about 43 minutes now of your time and we're so glad that you share it with us so, yeah thank uh, you thank you, Appreciate thank it. you thanks for much.
2: doing that work and uh, and bringing it to us
3: yeah, and please share uh, resources. We will put on the notes for this episode the link to the report, so that people can learn more about it, and uh, maybe ways to get in touch with you and with the center. And with that, thank you very much. Stay tuned. We'll come back with more story on redefining society. Thank you.
1: Bugcrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impact of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you
0: enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels.